How many of us remember looking in the mirror this morning, getting ready for church? Anybody remember that? <clears throat> scary sight for some, I'm pretty sure. Seriously, scary sight for some. Pleasant for others. It was pleasant for me, not looking in my mirror, but looking in the mirrors I walked by my wife. And, and uh, non, not a non-experience probably for eight-year-olds. Don't come out of the bathroom without having brushed your teeth. You know, one of those deals or whatever. Scary for some, pleasant for others, a non-experience for the young. But we have this picture in our minds of uh, how we look. And we talked about this a little bit when we were going through the study of James, about a person who looks in the mirror and right away they forget what they look like, so to speak, as a, as a believer. We have this picture in our minds of how we look and what we think others might think. So have you ever had the experience of looking in the mirror and you've approved the final, the final, you know, whatever your choices were, you've, you've finally got it down to what you think it's going to be today, whether it's a dress or whether it's a suit and tie or whether it's a, what an open collar or what, what, whatever it is. And uh, you walk out and someone like your roommate or maybe it's a spouse or someone like that that's around you and they, they, they say something like this, uh, you're not going out looking like that, are you? <laughs> I always hate it when that happens. It doesn't happen very often, but um, it's not said like that either, but uh, I said it to be funny. But, you know, we've all heard it in different forms, I'm sure. And all of a sudden you, you get this wake-up call that suggests that what you thought was okay really may not be as okay as what you thought it was at the time. And so we take stock of some things to make sure we're not operating in some kind of a delusion that, uh, you know, this really looks good, I think I look great, and come to find out I need to make some adjustments or whatever. That color doesn't work with that color and so on and so forth. That happens to every disciple of Jesus from time to time. Every true disciple of Jesus, that happens to. We look in the mirror, so to speak, at ourselves, and we have this perception of how we are, how we're doing, so on and so forth. And then it's like the Holy Spirit, through maybe sometimes through someone, or through a sermon, or through a song, or through just some testimony, or maybe just the Holy Spirit speaking to us and says, um, that could stand a little adjustment, a little tweaking. You didn't quite get the makeup just the way that suits your face the best, and that color coordination doesn't work for your skin tone and all that sort of thing. So we think we're doing pretty well, and then we get that wake-up call. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes uh, we've looked in the mirror uh, we, we've studied it, we, we've really tried to do our very best, we thought, and uh, someone comes and bursts our bubble and says something to the effect that uh, you ought not go out looking like that. Sadly, in the course of serving our Lord, often we don't take a hard and needed look at our witness until something tragic happens, and that's, the, that's part of the beauty of the Lord's Supper. This is an opportunity for us to come intimately privately. No, no one asks you to share your thoughts. No one asks you to reveal everything inside your spirit, your mind, your heart, whatever. It was private. It was between you and your Lord, if you, if you know Jesus. And the Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us, affirming some things that maybe we've done well, and revealing some things that maybe we haven't done so well in terms of color coordination or whatever it is. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes that doesn't happen until someone loses a job suddenly and you don't have work and you don't have a paycheck coming in. 
And all of a sudden, you start looking at life from a little different perspective. You start taking a good hard look at yourself and say, well, what was wrong with me? Or why didn't they want to keep me on the job? Or why was I so easy to excuse? Or you ask yourself those questions. It may have just been a cutback. It may not have been any, had anything to do with you. But it shakes you up and it causes us to, to think uh, uh, in, in the sense of introspection. Uh, sometimes it happens when we've had a serious surgery. And it causes us to uh, revisit our testimony for Christ. Sometimes it can happen as a result of the loss of a close friend or a relative. And um, it gets our attention. And we, we start thinking about life from a different perspective. And it's good for us. So here we have this Apostle Paul we're going to read in, first, uh, or in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read starting at verse 22 in just a moment. But so we have this Apostle Paul who is writing to one of his favorite churches, the church at Philippi, the Philippians. And he's having to think about whether he's going to make it out of prison or not. Did you catch that? This series that we're going to look at has to do with Paul wondering about whether he's going to make it out of prison or not. So let's read it. Here we go. Verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart, that word depart in the Greek means to pull up stakes. Any of you have ever driven stakes in and you put a tent up temporarily and then and it's time to leave and you, so you pull up the stakes. That's what that word refers to. He said, I'm, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to pull up the stakes, to depart, and be with Jesus, be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake, you Philippians, that I left behind. I'm in jail now. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Why? So that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. And that's the portion that we're going to take a look at this morning. So first of all, and here's some thoughts that just come to my mind. I'm trying to, trying to make some things that are, they pop up in terms of the subject matter and then trying to make them somewhat relevant and appropriate to some of the things that, that happen or that we're faced with in our lives. And so I hope that I've hit two or three of those this morning. So first of all, let's clear up something about choosing. When he says, uh, when he says, uh, uh, I do not know, in verse 22, I do not know which to choose. See, he's pressed. Do I stay here and help Philippians and other people, or do I go on and be with Jesus? And he said, I, I, I don't know which one of those to choose. So what, what are his choices, and, and, and about what is he having to choose? Well, I just told you. Here, here are some options that popped up to me. Here he is, chained to a Roman guard 24-7, He's probably been uh, in that position for uh, close to a couple of years now, waiting for his trial before Nero, the emperor. And so here are, based on what we just read, here are some possible options for him to choose. He said, I, I don't know what to choose. What? Well, one choice, it seems to me, is stay in prison and serve Jesus the best I can for however long it lasts. I'm just going to just accept the fact that it's every day chained to this guard. They rotate him around, and I'm just going to do the best I can and just stay in jail till they let me out. That's one option. Here's another option. Uh, I hope that I get pardoned. 
Of course, he's already been there a couple of years, and so that's going to be a while. Here's a third option I saw. He somehow escapes from the guard, and, and then uh, he, he escapes from the prison, and they look for him, and they can't find him, and so he's free, and he escapes, and he goes back to the Philippians and enjoys some time with them. That's an option. Probably not likely, but it's an option. Here's another one. God comes down and swooshes him away like he did Enoch or Elijah in the Old Testament. And he just plucks him right out of there. That's an option. Or here's another option. He finds a way to somehow end his life so that he can just be with Jesus right away. Just if my life is done here, then I know that I'm going to go and be in the presence of Jesus. I'm going to be in heaven. Any other possibilities? You all see any others? You can jot them down in your notes or whatever. Those were just five that I saw. Now, here, let me just share this with you. It, it is not that God is teaching us in this passage that the number of our days is up to us so we can choose the day of our death. That's not what this is talking about, in case you were wondering. What Paul is writing here is that he doesn't know, as he's chained to this guard, whether Nero, the emperor, is going to decide his fate as to release him or chop his head off. That's the dilemma that he doesn't know about. He, he's wondering about what, what is going to happen when I go to court. And so he's contemplating what happens if I end up staying here for an extended period of time and I continue to serve Jesus the best I can and hopefully they'll let me out one day. Or what happens if Nero takes my head off? Then I am done. If he kills Paul then Paul is happiest because he gets to meet Jesus in heaven. If he remains alive in this life because he knows his consistent witness for Jesus has been helpful and encouraging to people, not only in the prison, but also the Philippians who know he's in prison and they're being encouraged because his witness is still strong, uh, that's a good thing too. So both of these things that he's having to choose from that could happen, Nero taking his head off and, and, and taking his life away from him, or God leaving him in this status, and he continues to serve God, and it becomes an encouragement to others, we call that win-win. Now one is more fun than the other, <laughs> right? One is easier than the other, but they're both win-win when it comes to spiritual things. So let's pause for just a moment and look at Paul's desire to be with Jesus, because that's what he's talking about. He says, man, I'd, I want to be with Jesus. Some of us feel that way. In verse 23, he talks about his joy at going to heaven if he dies. If he dies. He knows he's going to die, but he doesn't know if he's going to die in prison at Nero's hands or whether he's going to get out and die like we all die at some point whenever our time comes. So verse 23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You notice that the Greek language there is kind of interesting. It's like kids talk. It was an overemphasis on the positive. You know, a child will, might say something like this. Well, that's, it's more better if I get to eat my dessert first before I have to eat my meat and mashed potatoes. It's more better if I get to do the more better. We don't really talk like that. Kids do sometimes. That's really what this is, a double positive. He said, that is very much better. That is more better if I just go to heaven and be with Jesus. And I think we can all say amen. So, so I'm talking about the desire to depart. His desire to depart and be with Jesus. Uh, 
There's a Greek word called sunekamai, and sunekamai means to be pressed on or constrained as in a crowd, to feel oneself pressed in, pent up. And we don't know exactly what to do because we're, we're pent up all inside and we, we're not sure what direction to take. This morning, as I speak, two of our staff people here at Lakeview are very privileged because they are walking in the footsteps of Jesus as I speak. They are in the Holy Land. Jessica and Amos Foltz are in the Holy Land. They left this last week and they'll be gone for nine or ten days, something like that. And I know one of the places that they're going to be visiting, and some of you perhaps have been there. Cynthia and I have had the privilege of being there. It's a place called Petra. Uh, I'm going to show it to you on the map if we can. Pet, we'll put the, can we get the map up there? Is that going to work okay? I hope. There we go. So you can see Petra, uh, where the star is. It's in the southern part of Jordan. It dates back to 300 B.C. It was the capital of a, an Arab people called Nabataeans. And uh, it actually became famous. We'll put the next picture up. It became famous through uh, uh, an Indiana Jones movie some time ago uh, where it was featured. Some of you remember seeing that. I forget which one of those movies it was, Harrison Ford, whatever. But it became somewhat of a famous site and still is today. But what I want us to notice, and I'm going to show us another image in a second. In this next picture, I want you to notice how the sides of the corridors that you walk through, that, that Jessica and Amos and their team will be walking through. It's a team from Indiana Wesleyan University that are there. Uh, they're being pressed in from every side. So if we can put the next slide up. Is that going to work okay? Hello? There is another slide. There it is. Now, you can see how the walls uh, all through Petra are they're, they're rigid. They're narrow. You can see if you look deep into that picture, you can see how narrow that is. And this is the feeling that Paul was saying that I, I, I'm experiencing when I'm trying to figure out if Nero puts me to death, I get to go be with Jesus, that's a great thing. If I have to stay here for a while uh, and be uh, imprisoned and chained to this guard and try to do my work for Christ, then uh, that's good too because uh, I, I, the Spirit is telling me that I, I'm encouraging, my witness is encouraging people back home. My church in Philippi is, is being encouraged that I'm standing strong even in a hard place. And so he said, I'm pressed in from two good ideas, but, I, but I'm having to choose in my heart, in my mind, uh, how I'm going to respond to whichever one of these it is. So it, it's when two good choices press in on us and we can see good things out of both of them, but we have to choose one over the other. And that feels like tremendous pressure when we have to do that. Even though they're both good things, there's pressure to have to decide. It's sort of like the last time you entered the uh, uh, sweepstakes. What's the big one that everybody signs up for all the time? Publisher's Clearinghouse, okay. And somebody has the audacity to ask you these two questions, something, some form of this or whatever. So when you win and they bring, they bring all the, the flowers and the, they, the, and the band comes and they play and in your neighborhood and you just won the sweepstakes or whatever, we need to know right now, do you want $100,000 every year for the rest of your life or do you want us to deliver you a brand new Porsche and Ferrari each year until you die? you got to tell us, which one is that? Which one do you want? And you're thinking, oh man, those are both good. Mm, like, which, what do I choose? And honey, what do you think we should do? And, you know, we do all that stuff. It's kind of silly. 
But it's not silly in Paul's case because these were two serious options that he had to think through. And that's the feeling of sunekamai. It's conveying two honorable choices in front of Paul. One is filled with the unknown, which could be personal tragedy, personal pain, imprisonment, even his head being lopped off. But it's for a worthy cause to encourage others in their faith. That's a good thing. The other one is to be filled with personal joy of being in the presence of Christ. And that being in the presence of Christ takes away the toil, the pain, the, dis the, the discomfort. Uh, all of that is gone away to be in the presence of Jesus. Both good things, but not possible to experience at the same time. So here's Paul stuck right in the middle. It's as if it were up to him which one of those to choose, but it isn't. Did you catch that? It isn't up to him to choose. He said, which one am I going to choose? But it really isn't up to him. Now let's talk about the choosing part. Technically speaking, when we go to heaven, and by the way, let me just pause there. How do you get to go to heaven? Well, let's just rehearse this just a bit because there may be some here who are not sure how that works. There's some here that think maybe if you go to church, you get to go to heaven. There may be some here who think that if you drink the, the, the cup and you, you eat the bread with everybody that did it, that somehow God likes that and he's going to let you go to heaven. Uh, some people may think that, oh, if I bring 30 pieces of silver and be generous in an offering, that God's going to let me go to heaven. That somehow, if I can do more good things than I did bad things, then God is going to let me go to heaven. But it's really like going through the scanner at the airport security. And you know how that feels. You walk through there and the thing goes, eh, they make you go back through, and so you take your belt off, and then you walk back through, and then you go back and you take your rings off and put them in the bowl, walk back, and then you reach down, and you say, oh, it's my watch, and you put it in the bowl, and then you try to get back through, and there's another the necklace, it's whatever, and, and, and. that's what happens when we have sin in our lives, and we want to go to heaven, but the, but the security machine keeps saying, nope, sin, sin, and, and, and and keep sending us back through. And it's like Jesus comes along, and Jesus said, don't go through there. I've got another door. I'm a door. I've already taken care of that sin stuff, so take my hand, come on, let's go over here, and let's come through this gate, and you walk through, and there's no, eh, eh. it's uh, enter in to the joy of the Lord. It is through the person and work of what Jesus did on the cross and you and I acknowledging that by faith to God and asking for forgiveness. And so technically speaking, when we go to heaven, people who have done that and have that relationship with Jesus, it becomes God's call when we go to heaven, not ours. It's God's call. But the heart and attitude in which we process the possibilities is what seems to be Paul's point in this message. How, is, how are godly men and women supposed to process different options that come their way even when all the options are good options? They're good things. One may be better than another, but how do you choose? And how do we do this? It's as if Paul is having a private conversation with God in the boardroom where all the decisions are made. Just, just Paul and God about at what point, God, is my work for Jesus complete? 
such that you will release me to heaven? Or at what point is it not yet finished and you still have some work for me to do, which is going to be a blessing and it will be to my credit that I was obedient and that I obeyed. And it too will be okay because in the end I still get to go to heaven because of Christ. It's sort of like he's having this conversation with God. Well, how's this going to work out? Are you going to let Nero cut my head off? Or am I to stay in prison for a while longer and keep witnessing? It's as though God is allowing Paul to have this conversation with him about when his life will end, when in reality, he doesn't have any say about when his life will end. Only God. Everything about Paul's life, including his death, is and always has been in the hands of God, as is yours and mine. But the letter gives us a look through the keyhole of how a godly man or woman thinks through what faithful service means to God. We're look, Paul's giving us a little peephole. Look, here's what faithful service looks like to God for a, per, a man or a woman who is mature in their faith. So let's talk for just a moment about fruitful labor because that's what, that's what popped up. As soon as I read this passage, I thought, main topic, fruitful labor. What is fruitful labor? What's the definition of fruitful labor? You see the picture on the screen? You think this represents fruitful labor? <laughs> uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a long distance bicycle rider. I don't know what's going through his mind. I'll put that in about fourth gear and I'll eat my lawn up and just burn it right up. I don't know how fruitful that labor would be with that contraption or not. But let's look at John chapter 15 verses 1 through 6. And let's talk about what fruitful labor looks like, why it's important. Fruitful labor. John 15, verse 1. I am the vine. This is Jesus talking. I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Well, that's not very pleasant. So when we read, and if we read farther, we don't have time this morning to read further in John, but it, just trust me if I summarize this properly. When we read further what Jesus says in John 15, he talks about, he talks about what that fruitful labor looks like. And I boiled it down to two things. One, loving fellow believers with the love of Jesus. That, that means in the fellowship of Christ, in the church of Jesus Christ, to, to, to have fruitful labor means that we are supposed to be nice to each other. We are supposed to be loving with one another. We are supposed to see one another in the foyer and say, you know what, I haven't seen you for six days. Man, is it great to see you. It's like going to a family reunion. Say, I haven't seen Aunt Martha for six months or six years or whatever. How are you doing? Let me give you a big old hug and a kiss. 
That's the love of Jesus that he says needs to permeate the church of Jesus Christ. And so how are we doing? You know, some of us kind of walk around like this, and some of us are waiting for somebody to approach us, and some of us, when we get approached, we give a one-word answer. and we get a, You know, we should, it, it's, a, it's about love. Loving the brethren. Loving the brethren. I, you know, I have to work at that some days. Have you ever had some days where you thought, if I don't see another human being for the next 24 hours, if I, don't see, if I don't see another student, rowdy student that's got all kinds, don't doesn't listen to what I say and, and, and don't respect authority, I think, I've, you know, I think I can, you know, I think I'll die first. I, you know, we all have those days. But Jesus wants us to be fruitful laborers. And the first thing he says in, in John 15 is love the brethren. He didn't say like them. I, you know, I, I try to be loving to people even when I don't like them. I don't tell them I don't like them. You shouldn't either. Don't t- you can tell God. So I, don't like, I don't like her very much. I don't like him very much. But when we are talking to one another and when we are around one another, Jesus says to love one another, to, to be gracious and kind. Love the brethren. And then the second thing that I see, and I'll just sum it up for you. You can read it. Go home and read it. Is continue reaching into the world with the truth of the gospel. So you can save the lost and make disciples. Love the brothers and sisters in the church and in the kingdom, so to speak, and continue expanding God's territory throughout the world. That's what I see in John chapter 15. So, what are we doing, Tim? What are you doing to advance the faith of others? Am I consistently being loving and kind and gracious and tender to the people in the body, not just Lakeview, but certainly Lakeview, but all of the members of the body of Christ, And am I doing my part to try to propagate the good news that only through Jesus Christ can people go to heaven and get that out into the world? Just those two basic things are part of abiding in the vine. All right. So let's take a look at, you know, something that I said earlier. Sometimes it takes a wake-up call to get us to revisit how we look in the mirror. You know, we left the house thinking, I think I look pretty good. And someone else comes and says, well, I don't like the way you shaped your beard this morning. You know, I think you should, you know, has it always been that long? Or don't you, have you ever tried shaving that whole thing off? You know, you might look better. You know what, I don't, you know, you know what I'm saying? Apply it to yourself. And, and, and we get this wake up call. So Adoniram Judson, and I look over here and I, I, see, I see Mike Rohrbach and who's just, just came back from Burma. Adoniram Judson, 40 years, they say one of the first missionaries, if not the first, from the United States of America to the people of Burma. He just got back from Burma, Myanmar. After 14, it was 40 years there. After 14 years of ministry, you know how many converts he had? 14 years. A handful. A handful of converts after 14 years. And then he ended up in one of their prisons. I don't know if you got to see a prison or not when you were over there, Mike. You probably didn't want to. It's probably very depressing and ugly. These third world countries are awful when it comes to prison. And they said he was kept in not just a prison, but he was kept in a horrible prison for one and a half years. And if that wasn't bad enough... His wife and his children caught disease and they died while he was in that horrible prison. 
So you talk about a wake-up call, something that'll get your attention. And here's a quote from Adonai Judson. After all of that, he said this, because somebody, somebody here may be going through a hard place. You may be facing some kind of an illness or some kind of a challenge or whatever it may be in your life and you just wonder, is this ever going to get better? Here's what he said, and I quote, If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings, unquote. So would we conclude that his life in a hard place was an example of fruitful service, like Paul's was while he was in prison? I think probably so, yeah. So, fruitful service, here's a little thing you may want to just contemplate, maybe jot down. Fruitful service, and this is what I'm concluding from studying this passage, one of the things. Fruitful service apparently means as much to God as rewarding His children with everlasting life. Till we get there, and He wants to give us everlasting life, and He will. It's promised to every true believer. But to God, it's as important to give us heaven at the end as it is for us to give fruitful labor and service until we get there. That's what I'm picking up from this. To take what we might think you know, you might think that my effort is a measly effort. Why, I, I don't know that the church really could use my help in this particular area. You know, I stood up, I stood up last week and I said, uh, <clears throat> I, I made a statement to the body. And you know, my dad taught me, my dad taught me this about um, the uh, pastor. He said, when the pastor speaks, you pay attention to it and you, and you respect it. You respect it and you pay attention to when the pastor says something, just do it. Pastors aren't perfect, but when the pastor says something, pay attention to it, do something about it. Of course, you may not know that my pastor was my dad, so, <laughs> so he was basically ensuring that I would pay attention and do what he said. But the fact of the matter is, last week I said, you know what, we need some rotation in our multimedia. Some of you, you know how to do Facebook and you're doing it all the time. You figured out how to do it. Doesn't matter what your age is. You know, people know how to do it. People know how to work some of the electronics, and you've got a mind that you could learn some of that stuff, and they'll train you. I, I came in the office Monday, and after they had a chance to look at all the communication cards, I said, Hey, how many volunteers did we get who would help our media team just do some rotation so they could have a little time off? Okay. They said, We got one. I said, Who was it? I said, Well, he was in the sixth grade. <laughs> So, so are we going to, will we talk to that young man? Yeah, we'll talk to him. There's something about our, our junior leaders coming up and learning how to do those things. Absolutely. But where's the rest of the fruitful laborers? When the pastor says, we need this. Where are they? It's just something for us to think about. That's not a lecture. That's just, hey, hey, we need some help here. We got people doing extra duty. We got people going overboard 24-7. They need a break. They need to come up for air. They, and so I'm just saying that, and, and I appreciate your thoughtfulness about that. I hope we get a whole bunch of stuff in this week, and we'd be glad to talk to you about it. But everybody happy? We're still doing okay? All right. For us to think that what we might do, whether it's learn how to put a picture up on the screen or to shake somebody's hand coming in, 
or to, to show up on Saturday to make sure that the muck has been sprayed off with a hose so our people don't drop, drop one another off in the mud because we've done some work out there, some construction work or whatever. Someone might say, well, that's measly. That, that's pathetic. That, that, that can't matter that much to Jesus. We might think that it's a measly effort to do these good things for him as if God doesn't place a high value on it. But what I see in this Philippian passage is that no, God does place a very high value on what Paul is doing in the prison. Yes, he's going to take him to heaven one day, but till he gets there, he said, man, you are making a difference in the Philippians. They're clear across the ocean and they're hearing what a good job you're doing chained to that guard and still propagating the gospel and loving the guard and propagating the gospel, loving the brethren and extending the gospel. And they're proud of you and it's making them do better themselves. And that tells us a lot about how God values what we do for him in the life of the church, especially. That's why, in my humble opinion, we need to take seriously our membership in the life of the church. Let me tell you something. If you were a member 20 years ago and you haven't signed on to become a member now because the time is starting to run out, what's the difference between back then and now? Did you fall off the spiritual wagon? Did you, did you decide that you're going to backslide and you can't sign something? Like, what's the difference? Why, why would that be hard for you to sign and affirm say, yeah, I, I, I'm covenanting with the life of this church. And I'm going to give and I'm going to serve and I'm going to do all the things that I'm going to do because I see Paul doing that right to, the very, right to the very end. That's why every true believer in Jesus, I believe, needs to be engaged in a life-giving church. And not only engaged in a life-giving church, but engaged in some kind of form of ministry that you can be engaged in, whether it's taking a rotation in a Sunday school class or being a guest speaker or representing our missions department or whatever it may be, everybody ought to be doing something, perhaps many things. A serving capacity that involves loving one another and reaching into the world for Jesus. God could take us home anytime he chooses, right? So we only have this time in this life to be serving him as Paul was. Now, his reason for continuing in these bodies, Paul's reason for continuing in these bodies that are ultimately going to waste away and go back to the dust is not, did you hear me say, it is not, and I don't know that you would have concluded this, but I just want to be sure, it is not so that we can have our heavenly reward on earth. In other words, God didn't say, Paul, I'm leaving you here in prison, chained to this guard, because... You haven't yet enjoyed your heavenly reward on earth. So I'm going to give you a little more time in your body to be able to experience luxury somewhere, somehow. Don't know where you're going to get it, when it's going to happen. But you deserve it because I love you. It's not because of that. It's not, we're not left here in these bodies so that we can get more mileage out of our social security. We are not left here so that we can benefit from our 401k. That, that is not why God leaves us in place here. It is not so that we can satisfy our own wants and our own wishes for a while before we leave and we go to a place, an eternal place, where the focus is not going to be on us, but it's going to be on the glory and the majesty of God for all of eternity. 
It's not so that we can just hug on our babies and our grandbabies and our great-grandbabies, although that's a good thing. We're not being left here for that. We're being left here for fruitful labor. Fruitful labor, loving the brethren and extending the gospel. Every person's timing of life and service here and now, as opposed to death and reward on the other side in heaven, is a precious plan of God that Paul is helping us to be reconciled to with a proper heart. That's what I see him doing. He's helping us reconcile these issues. This is not about playing God and contemplating suicide because God has already spoken to us about the value of life. Paul was not in prison thinking about, well, I'll just do myself in and I'll go straight to heaven. That's not what he was thinking about. He wasn't, it wasn't like choose life or death and I, I may choose to commit suicide. I may try to find a way to hang myself in prison. Now I get out of this mess. Now I go to be with Jesus because that's far better. That's not what he's thinking about. Let me talk to you about suicide for just a moment. Not that I think anybody is thinking of that, but occasionally it does come across people's minds. So what does the Bible say about suicide, about choosing, choosing that as a way, if you're a Christian, so to speak, to get with God sooner? Well, Deuteronomy 30, 19, listen to what it says. I've got several scriptures here I want to write, and you can write the things down and, and have them. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Choose life. That's what God thinks about life. By loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. You see, if given the choice to continue productively serving the purposes of Jesus in the prison or to immediately enjoy the presence of the Lord without labor and toil and trouble on Paul's part, which would you choose? Which would you choose? Anyone who knows what the Bible says about heaven and anyone who loves Jesus would wisely choose heaven. What, you got, a, you got rocks in your head? Anything less than heaven is a lesser choice. Amen? How do we know that? Because the Bible says heaven is greater than what we can even imagine. The problem is that everyone has to die to cross from this life into the next life, heaven. There's this part in between that's called death. Everyone has to pass through death to get from there to hear. Now, there have been a few exceptions. I mentioned a couple of them earlier. Enoch, God took him. He was so close and intimate with God, God just took him. Elijah, chariot, you know, the whole thing. There's a few of those. But the way of man is that God has appointed a time. God has appointed a time. Job 14.1 Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one, since his days are determined. His days, your days, my days are determined. The number of his months is with you, God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. 
Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his day like a hired man. You know, we're like hired men and women. We've got a job to do for X amount of time, and then it's done. Psalm 31, 14, listen to this. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. But my times are in, my time is in your hands, God. It's in your hands. So we're talking about suicide. Our time is in his hands, not ours, not yours, not mine. Hebrews 9.27. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. So also Christ died once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins. No more, eh, can't get through the security, eh, no more of that. But to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. <laughs> a great promise. That's what this symbolized, this, this supper symbolized. Let me tell you something about the sixth commandment. You know what the sixth commandment is of the Ten Commandments? Pretty sure it's the sixth one. I stand corrected if I'm wrong. I should know it. I thought I counted it up right. Thou shalt not kill. That's kind of how we memorize it, isn't it? Thou shalt not kill. But what it really says in the original is, thou shalt not commit murder. There's a difference between killing and murder. Go look it up. Check it out. There is a spiritual significance between those two. He said, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not willfully, deliberately, premeditatedly, in an evil and harsh way, commit death. It's called murder. Genesis 9, 6 says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God, for in the image of God... He made man. He said, don't murder a man. Don't murder a woman. Why? Because the man and the woman are made, fashioned in the very image of the Creator. So if we understand that, if we read between the lines, spiritually speaking, here's what it says to me. Murder is the ultimate assault on the image of God. Murder of self is the absolute ultimate assault on the very image of God. So the question is, do you want to stand before God having insulted Him at the highest level with regard to His image? Well, you think about that. People that are thinking about suicide, they don't think about that. But, but you're not thinking about suicide, so get it in your mind so that the devil can never tempt you with that. Amen? Suicide is the ultimate act of a lack of faith. Think about that. Suicide, taking, murdering our own life, is the ultimate act of a lack of faith. Because it implies that somehow, even God can't help us out of a particular situation. That's what it says to God. You can't help me. There's no way out of this. So I'm choosing. And the Bible says that if that is an assault on our faith, that God can't help us, the Bible teaches us that we cannot have a relationship with God without faith. We come to God by faith, not by science, although science may move us that direction. Science and math may have inspired you to open your heart's door to faith, but it is not by science 
that we come to God and have intimacy with Him. It is by faith. That's the way He wants it. That's the way He likes it. So no true believer wants to meet God, having murdered his own life, knowing that it is an assault on God's image, knowing that it represents a lack of faith in God's power to help us in our most difficult hour. Now, in summary, Paul says that living for Christ and not dying, even though it is sometimes very difficult, is a great way to live. Even though I'm still chained to this guard, Paul is saying this is still a great way to live because I am pleasing the Father, I am still obeying His will, I am still producing a good value for the, for the fruit of my labor with God's help. It's still a good thing. Until then, until we, until, let me put it this way, when God chooses for us to cross over, when God chooses that your time has come and my time has come, when God chooses for us to cross over to heaven, that will always be preferred because we know that it will be, to some extent, greater than what we can imagine. We'll always prefer heaven first. But to prefer to stay and to work and to, and, and to produce uh, fruitful labor is a good thing for all of us to keep in mind. Until then, until God brings us over, we love the brethren and we extend the gospel into the world. Now, let me close with this. I need six more minutes, but I'm not going to talk. There is no person that I know of who we would all have heard of who has demonstrated any more than Billy Graham an emphasis and a strong desire to go to heaven. He has said it over and over and over. I'm going to heaven. I can't wait to get there. But until I get there, I am devoted to fruitful labor, regardless of the cost, regardless of the pain and the toil, regardless of the spiritual warfare, I want to be a fruitful laborer until I get home. Watch this. The moment you read in the paper that Billy Graham is dead, you'll know that he's more alive than he's ever been before, and I'm in paradise. And I'm looking forward to it. The mark you made for the gospel, for the good news, for Jesus, is unprecedented. What a life, what a life well lived. Well, he was one of the most important Christian evangelists who ever drew breath. Now, you can't change your past, but Christ can change your past. I can only imagine. God, I'm certain, is with me, and when I come to the moment of death, I believe that at that moment, there's going to be an angel that will take me by the hand and usher me into the presence of the Lord. What in the world? presence and it's going to be the most peaceful, the most wonderful, the most thrilling moment when I walk that I have ever experienced. By your side, God has sent me out as a warrior. I can only imagine on the five continent to preach the gospel. What my eyes will see when your face That's the way to God is through Jesus. Is before me. I can only imagine when you go home tonight, you don't go alone. Christ goes with you. He loves you. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence?
Thank you for the integrity of a man who backed it up in every kind of a way. Let's talk about 9-11 first. 2001, you're in the White House. What happened, Carl? Well, uh, Tim Gagline and Matt Smith, two of my deputies, uh, were in charge of the service at the National Cathedral, and they suggested that Billy Graham be asked to participate, and he readily agreed. The difficulty was we had to get him to Washington, D.C., and on that morning of that service, one civilian aircraft was in the skies above the um, above the United we States. We should remind everybody it, it, that aircraft have been grounded all across the country at that point. One civilian aircraft is in the skies above the United States and it bears Billy Graham. He died on the cross so that all the sins you've ever committed, all the things you've ever done wrong, are forgiven. What do you have to do? You have to repent of your sins. I can only imagine when that day comes. And I find myself standing in the sun I can only imagine when all I would do Is forever, forever worship you I can only imagine This is a joyful, godly man I want to just say thank you, God I can only imagine that you blessed this generation with a man whose heart was sold out to you. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? I dance for you, Jesus, or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? Stop with his generation. I can only imagine when all I would do is forever, forever worship you. There's been nobody like this man, probably ever in the history of mankind. And to watch people respond to the message, pretty overwhelming every single night. I can only I would like to be remembered as a person who was faithful to God. 
faithful to my call and did it with integrity and with love. I'm going to ask you to do something that we've seen thousands of people do all over the world. I'm going to ask you to make a commitment tonight to be sure that you know Christ and that you're ready for eternity. Let's stand. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you'd like to know him before you leave this morning, I would encourage you to either make your way to the front or make your way to the prayer room out in the foyer and someone will meet you there and we'll be happy to pray with you and show you how, you how you can have peace with God. Did you notice that Billy talked about love? Talked about love and loving people. What if I told you, 99 years, he had plenty of critics. He had plenty of critics, but he was faithful. Paul had plenty of critics, but he was faithful. And our faithfulness in fruitful labor for Jesus is that we all get involved and pull together in the harness, together in love and in unity. And so I encourage you. I encourage you to sign up on the membership thing. I encourage you to get involved in how to become a member if you'd like to know because it, it's, it cements and tightens things up in covenant and, and, it, and, it, and it gives us a sense of belonging and responsibility. I encourage you to do that. And uh, I, I encourage you to, to be faithful in an assignment. Get involved, whether it's in the multimedia or someplace, and say, how can I serve at a deeper level than I have? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this body of believers. Thank you for Billy Graham's life. Lord, uh, his body was laid to rest, but his soul and his spirit are in your presence because that's what you said in your word. And so we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, as we all prepare for our own home going, that we would, uh, that we would meet you with our faith intact, with our desire to be faithful laborers for you, and uh, that we would be protected with your help, by your help, by the Holy Spirit, throughout this life, whatever lingers, whatever remains for each one of us, and that we would be filled with your Spirit, that we would be useful for you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.